way. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Exodus. And we're going to get a bit of a running start um, at Exodus. You can open up to chapter 28, but we're kind of launching past that as you get there. Um, you know, Exodus, as you know, is it probably have, was we're seeing a bit of a divide, and the, the Red Sea crossing kind of splits Exodus in a sense as well. Uh, there's the, everything that happens to the Israelites before the Red Sea crossing, their enslavement, the, the plagues, the deliverance, and then after the Red Sea and their journey here to where we are now at, at Mount Sinai. So Exodus um, 15 is that wonderful portion that kind of sets it off with song. And Israel is praising God, and they go through that summary of everything that God has done. The Lord saved Israel. Israel see the Egyptians are dead. They see the great power of the Lord, and they fear God, and they believed him, and they, they break out in song. And we love that from Exodus chapter 15. I will sing to the Lord. He's triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he throws into the sea. He's my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. I'll never forget everything that God has done for me. And they ask the rhetorical question that needs no answer because we all know the answer. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Answer, no one is like you. Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Answer, no one. Awesome and glorious deeds, everyone all together. No one. Yay. God is the best. And above all, God says, all right, you are my people, and I'm going to define you. And when, when we uh, met together a couple times ago, I said the very first thing God does when he brings his people out of deliverance is he gives them a calendar. He gives them a calendar. He reorients their life, and so it's structured into a rhythm and a flow, and he gives them a, a calendar. And as he moves them toward his presence and who he is, revealing him and and re, and. and, and kind of like how he's going to deliver them, uh, the promised land into their hand in stages. You remember how he says that, don't worry, I'm going to kick them out, but in stages so that the wild animals don't take over. He's revealing himself as well in a sense like that. And he comes to this point where he says, everything about him is true. Everything you've seen me do is awesome. And above all, keep my Sabbaths. Above all, keep my Sabbaths, he says. For this is a sign between you and me and you, and me, and you, and you, and you, all throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I set you apart. You are special to me, right? We hear him over and over again in the Word of God, talking about how special his, these people are to him. Uh, when I was a kid, probably about uh, five or six years old, woke up one morning, and there was donuts in the house. That did not happen often growing up. But, you know, my sisters and I had two younger sisters. We go and there's the donuts. There's my mom and dad. We're ready to enjoy the donuts. I believe it was a Sunday before church. And they opened up the box of donuts and every single donut had a tongue print lick mark on it. Every one of them. All of the donuts with that little frosting over the top. You know, the good stuff that you wanted to lick to yourself. No, every single one had a tongue print in it. And my dad said, I sanctified them. <laughs> he set them apart for himself. <laughs> I sanctified every donut I set apart. I licked every donut. They're mine, right? And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't like being a pastor's kid. 
well, the regular kids don't have this kind of lesson at this early in the morning on a Sunday. And he went on to tell us uh, an account, a, a story about what sanctification means. And I never forgot it clearly to this day. And he brings out later the good box of donuts for us to always enjoy. And I think if I remember correctly, we went off to church and he had some kind of a lesson along sanctification for the church. And I already had my lesson in the morning. And he had licked all those donuts. And in a sense, that's exactly what God has done to all those people. He has reached down with his... A beautiful tongue of God <laughs> and licked his people and set all of his people apart that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. What does he do? He gives them a Sabbath, not just a Sabbath, but all the Sabbaths, because all of the holy convocations, the Moedim, the days that are set apart, are all Sabbaths. They're all days of rest. He says to them, it's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. He says that in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested and was refreshed, right? It's so beautiful that God knows. God gets us, and God wants us to understand him. Not only that, but right now, he is creating a picture for them to understand that he's recreating Eden. He's recreating Eden. If you go back to the Genesis account and you see the ordering of the days, the very first thing God does is he sets appointed times in his calendar for us to observe. He says the stars in the sky are going to help you orient yourself to this rhythm. And he says, that's what I'm going to do for you as well. And now as you go back through this lesson, as we move more and learn more about the tabernacle and how God ordained everything to come together, it all points to Eden because it's all God recreating a space on earth for him to dwell with his people, which is exactly what he did in Eden. God came down to dwell with his people. Of course, people blow that and then it, the scattering goes and he has to bring his people back to him. And so he's recreating that for us in this tabernacle. And so uh, we move on from that and God telling him, God telling the people, I've licked you. I mean, I've sanctified you. <laughs> I've set you apart. You are my special holy people. And I've given you a Sabbath again because nobody else does that. Every other society around them would have been work, 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 or orgasmic play, 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 play. And God says, no, you're going to work here and then you're going to take a rest so that you can be refreshed. And that's going to differentiate you from the rest of the world. It's a sign forever. And so we continue on from that time of God telling the people who they are, giving them this new identity. And God begins to reveal himself. And he does so in the 10 Devarim, the words, the 10 words, right? We call them the 10 commandments. And we have that whole scene in Exodus 20 where God's revealing himself and that and the cloud descends over Sinai and the thunder and the, the loud, that trumpet blast that keeps on getting louder and louder and louder and louder. And the people are like, whoa, what is this? This is overwhelming. And God says, go down and check on the people, make sure they're not touching my mountain. And he goes down and the people are like, yeah, um, we, we don't want to talk. We don't want to be in God's presence like this anymore. Moses, you go back up and you take care of this. It's too much for us. And so Moses says, okay. And he heads back up into the mountain. And that's where all of this, where we're going to kind of be focusing in on today begins when the people saw that Moses de delayed. So go ahead and open up your Bibles. God has given some descriptions about to Moses about um, how he wants his people to engage, what they're going to be building for him at the very end of chapter 31 he gave, uh, verse 18, and he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on the Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone 
written with the finger of God. Now there's a lot of accounts in the Bible that I bet like you are like me and wishing there was more detail. Wouldn't you have liked to know maybe more perspective of what Joshua felt? Maybe even more descriptions about how they actually made the matzah, right? You know, we have some basic ingredients and we each experience, if you took advantage of that and made it at home, you were, you were even saying, you were wondering how they were making it at home and did they have a rolling pin or not? So you just made it by hand, you said, you were trying to picture it. Wouldn't you have loved to have all the detail? There's many stories like that in the Bible. There's many opportunities where you wish, I really would have liked a lot more detail. Let's take a look back at verse 18 at the end of chapter 31. Look how much detail is about this one incident, this one final seal of this deal that God gives to Moses. He gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on, the, on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Couldn't Moses have just written, God wrapped it up and handed me some tablets? He gives a lot of detail about this. Why? It's a foreshadowing to help us to feel the weight of the importance of what's about to happen. Moses is taking care of serious business with God. God does something incredibly miraculous, writes on two sides, not just the front, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, like we see in Roman numerals. Right? Roman Empire wasn't even around yet. But he writes it on the front and the back of both tablets. And then Moses, that's it, of that scene. And then we switch scenes. And if you're a director of the movie, you know, the, the camera's up here in the cloud and the thunder and the, the lightning and the sound effects of carving the stone, however that would look, right? And then the camera pans because we have the people in chapter 32, verse 1. Follow along with me in your Bible. When the people saw that Moses delayed, pause. What, what does it mean to delay? What, what does delay mean? It means taking longer than I expected. That's delay because it's a subjective word. If you recall back at the beginning when Moses heads up the mountain, the only thing we hear is the people saying, this is too much for us. You go meet with God. He's overwhelming. We'll just stay down here in camp and we're busy anyway. We're bringing all this stuff up to the mountain and laying it around and keeping our you know, three-year-old toddlers from tumbling across the borderline and, and getting swallowed up by the glory of God at Mount Sinai. And we've got a lot to do down here. You take care of all that with God. But the verse it begins with, when the people saw that Moses delayed. How would they know he was delayed? Moses did not give them a timeline. If Moses had said, I'll be back in two shakes of a lamb's tail, which is what my mom used to say when she would leave myself and my two sisters in the back seat of our big sedan, the big bench seat sedan that rocked and rolled as we were driving off, she would park at the bank and she'd say, you hang out here in the car. This is back in the day when you could leave kids in the car and no one would arrest you. And I'll be back in two shakes of a lamb's tail to the bank and I'll come back out. Okay. We just got busy fighting with each other. You know, my sisters and I, we just did our sisterly things there until that got boring. And then we thought, where's mom? You know, and then we're getting a little annoyed and she's taking long. What is she robbing the bank? Actually, that would probably take quicker. You know, she was delayed. Whatever, two shakes of a lamb's tail. And Moses doesn't even give them that. He just says, I'm going up to the mountain. You, you know, you're sending me up there. And they have decided what delayed means. It's anything longer than what we'd like. We're uncomfortable with this time period. Ladies, I think we can all relate to that because there's been something in your life that you've been praying for and that you've been waiting for, that you've been wanting God to deliver on. And you're thinking, 
this feels delayed because you gave it an artificial amount of time. It is artificial because God never told you this was ever going to happen, number one, or number two, how long exactly it was going to happen. You decided that and it felt reasonable to you at the time because why? You're a reasonable person. You're not a crazy maniac. You don't have far-fetched imagination about what God should be doing. You're very reasonable. And so it's taking too long. So this is a this is a reminder to each of us that the idea of God being delayed and his timeline is really fiction <laughs> in our own mind, right? So when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Aaron, let's pray for your brother. You know, let's, whatever's going on up there must be pretty scary, a big cloud. And I know we were scared and we were down the, the foot of the mountain from it. So let's pray for Moses. Let's pray for your big brother, right? Or little brother. Let's pray for him. No, they gathered themselves together. Now here, listen, if one person has a thought in their mind, Moses has taken a long time. Where's Moses? And then she or he says it to somebody else. Now we've got a little situation going on because you've put an idea into somebody else's head about where Moses should be doing. Moses is like, oh, he, you, he kind of is, as if they had watches, <laughs> a little sundial on their wrist, whatever. <laughs> Moses is, you're right, he kind of, hey, did you, were you expecting him? Yeah, I was kind of expecting him. And boom, 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 it goes like that. You know what? We have the privilege in our community here and your fellowships elsewhere with your family, with your friends, with all your communities to be the person who can, who can stir up that kind of, hey, what's going on here mindset or the kind of person who just stays busy doing the Lord's work and trusting God and trusting his timing. And so they, they don't do any of that. <laughs> Just spoiler alert, uh, in case you didn't read chapter 32. They gather Aaron, they say to him, hey, hey, make us gods. It's a, a Jennifer Richmond translation. Up, make us gods, lowercase g, who shall go before us. Now, every single point of every sentence that we're going to read going forward is an exact reversal of everything they've already praised God for in Exodus 15. You make us gods who will go before us. God already went before us, and who is like you among the gods? No one. You already know the answer to this. People, what are you doing? Stop. Someone tell them to stop. As for this Moses, right? This Moses, the man who brought us up. Who? Wait, who? Who brought us up? The man who brought us up. Make a note of that in the Bible. We're going to get back to that point in just a minute. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The only true statement they have made in this entire dialogue is that one statement right there. We don't know what has become of him. So let's go ahead and imagine the worst possible scenario. We don't know what's become of him. So let's just go ahead and come completely hum unglued here. Instead of saying we don't know what's become of him, but we trust God who split open the sea and wrecked Egypt. We don't know what's become of him, and so you know what? We'll wait for God. No, we don't know what's become of him, so we're going to just come up with our own little plan. Ladies, we do the exact same thing, don't we? I don't know what's happening, so I'm just going to worry about the most ridiculous possible scenario, and I'm going to come up with my own way to solve it in the most ridiculous possible way, but it's not really in my mind, because why? I'm a reasonable person, right? So they, they come up with this. We don't know what's become of him, the one true thing they say. And Aaron says to them, hey now, simmer down, pump the brakes, back it up. Let's get back to doing the Lord. No, no, 
In case you haven't read, that is not at all what he says. Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And I read it that first time through and I thought, they have rings left? <laughs> they still have rings to give? <laughs> Here's the deal with rings. Rings were a sign of ownership. Rings were given as a sign of ownership. When you had a ring, you, you were owned in a sense by that family, by that person, um, a, a son, a wife. That was a sign of, of ownership. Not all of them, but some of them were purely decorative. But in that society, rings were a sign of ownership. He goes, bring me all your rings. They made the sign of ownership. We're going to melt that down. And he says, all right, take off your rings and we'll pile it up here and make another altar to God. <clears throat> no. All the people took off their rings of gold that were in their ears, brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it and with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, well, the, and, he, and they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar, made a, pro, make a proclamation, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Did you notice that? All caps, Lord. That means tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So he builds the idol and then desecrates it by saying, this is going to be a feast to Yahweh. Whoa. Well, hold on to all the things that Aaron's doing, check by check by check by check. When we get to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, and go, oh, <laughs> I get it. So remember that. Make a note of it so I don't forget to tell you. So Aaron sees this, and tomorrow's be a feast to the Lord. They rise up early the next day and offer burnt offerings, peace offerings, all the things God had already told them to be doing to him. And um, people sat down to eat and drink, rose up to play. You know, the Bible is very delicate sometimes about describing indelicate things. They rose up to play is an orgy celebration. It wasn't like, yay, you're playing hopscotch. No, again, they didn't even have that back then. So here we go. Remember all that's happening in this scenario. We left off at verse 18, and uh, he gave to Moses the tablets and the testimony, the stone and the finger of God. And here we go. God's now back in the picture, verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. What does he say? For your people, <laughs> your people, whom, who, you brought up. The Israelites are saying, oh, you know, who brought us up out of Israel, this Moses guy, right? And then God says, all right, I'm hearing he's listening in on everything. Go down for your people whom you apparently brought up, apparently, out of Egypt, um, they've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I've commanded them. Notice that out of the way. Hi highlight that in your Bible, out of the way. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I've commanded them. They made for themselves a golden calf. They worshipped it. They sacrificed to it. They said, your gods of Israel who brought you up. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen these people. They're a stiff-necked people. Let me alone. My wrath may burn against them. I might consume them in order that I may make you a great nation. Double underline that. I might make you a great nation nation who was the last person that God ever spoke those words to Abraham Abraham when he called Abraham I will make you a great nation your descendants will outnumber the stars of the sky Abraham he reiterates it to Isaac he reiterates it to Jacob and now he's turning his attention to Moses and Moses is like you know what I'll take you up on that offer I got door number one down here door number two let's go you and me Lord God Almighty Right? I mean, come on. Moses has already been on the receiving end of some of their goofy nonsense. And he's probably thinking, wait, what? They're doing? Okay. Let's just, and me, a great nation? Good deal. Let's do this. All right? No. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against who? 
your people. It almost feels like two parents pawning off children. Aren't they? Those are your kids. You know, no, they're not. They're yours. When they're doing badly, they're his kids. When they're doing great. They're yours, whatever, you know. Why does your wrath burn against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them on the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. Relent from this disaster against your people and remember what? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to make you out of a great nation. Uh, you told that to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that, he says to God. And your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said, I will multiply your offspring, the stars of the heaven, the land I have promised give you as an offering. David will inherit the land forever. Pause right there. It's humorous to imagine this scenario because it is actually, we're so distant from it. It does feel humorous, like it was played out into a movie. But I, it's not really two parents pawning off the kids. It can feel a little bit like that. But let me, let me tighten it up a little bit in your mind. God sees what's happening and he repeats it sarcastically back to Moses. He says, go down for your people, apparently. <laughs> They're your people. And Moses doesn't take the bait. God is testing Moses, right? The people are testing God. God is testing Moses. And Moses had apparently a legitimate opportunity right there and then to say, I'm out. <laughs> These people are exhausting. They're on my very last nerve and that's it. But Moses turns and says, no, they're not my people because they're your people. All right. I'm part of your big plan. And besides that, Moses shows that he gets it, that there's a bigger issue going on. And ladies, this is so important because he points and says, look, if, if this fails here, all the other people are going to look around and see what, what kind of God you are. I want your name to be glorified. I want your name to be made great. Ladies, listen, that should be the motivation of your prayer. That should be the motivation of everything that you do in your life. Lord, this scenario is so out of control, impossible. Don't let it go. Please, don't let it go. I want your name to be made great. I, I, I want the people in my life who are seeing how I'm at church and I'm in Bible study and I'm doing this and yet there's such a train wreck going on in my life. God, please bring you glory. This is why I fight and fight and fight for you to go into the word and to resist the temptation to say, what's in it for me? Take my Xanax today, make me feel good. No, I want you to meet God in here. I want you to be more concerned about meeting God than meeting your own needs and trust that you will have your needs met when you really actually are in it for who he is, right? And so he says, no, no, God, I, no, I, I'm not taking that deal. Uh, back to door number one, these people. Moses turns and he goes down the mountain of the two tablets of the testimony hand. He repeats this whole scenario, lots and lots of details about all this. Tablets that were written on both sides, the front and the back that they were written. The tablets are the work of God. The writing was the writing of God. They were engraved on the tablets over and over and over again. Why? He's building up to this big, you know, Charlton Heston moment right? Before you even get the movie. And then Joshua hears the people oh, with a shouting of victory, the cry of defeat. No, 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 no. As soon as he comes near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' <laughs> anger burns hot. God's anger had burned hot because he had supernaturally been able to see because God's omniscient. God had already seen it. God had already heard all of this. Now Moses sees it, sees it for his own self. So here's the deal. 
Moses already made his decision before he actually saw the reality of what was happening. All Moses had was the scenario that God was relaying to him, and he still passed the test. He still had held from why? Because he knows God, right? He trusts God, and he's more interested in God's ultimate plan than in his personal agenda, right? That's what we have to be about. It's such a temptation to, especially Christian and, and really good, wonderful women like you all are, to be swayed by our own personal agenda because you're not unreasonable people, right? But we have to be so overwhelmingly consumed by who God is, what his agenda is, that even when tempted in the most grand way possible, we still, without knowing the actual true outcome of everything, are still committed and recommitted to God's purpose and God's plan. Because Moses hadn't seen yet how gross and disgusting and horrific was actually going on. He had only heard God say it and he believed it and he was still staying committed to it. So he sees the calf, he sees the dancing, his anger burns hot, he throws the tablets. What tablets? The tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone, the tablets that were written by the finger of God, engraved on the both sides. He takes those tablets, verse 19, and he breaks them at the foot of the mountain. They're breaking the commandments. He's literally breaking the commandments. Verse 20. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Why? The gold will never be usable again. If he had just melted the gold down, they could just make, make something else out of it. They can make earrings and stick them back in their ears. That desecrated, idolatrous, disgusting act that they have done has no place for anything except to be consumed and pooped out so you can never use it again to be gross. You're going you're gonna to drink it. You're going to taste the bitterness of your sin. You're going to really get it to the deepest part of who you are. There's no way that's ever going to be used again. Moses says to Aaron, what did these people do to you to make you do all this, right? Well, you wouldn't believe what they did. It was horrible. This is the most hysterical story to teach to kids because you can teach this story to five-year-olds and they get it and they'll laugh because the next thing when Aaron says, I don't know, I just threw in the gold jewels and up pops this calf. Kids laugh at that. That's funny stuff. There could be a whole sitcom scenario written right here on this little passage. And I'll tell you right now, again, we're going to get to chapter 34 in a minute. Right here, the fact that Aaron was not struck by a bolt of lightning right at that very moment is is incredible to me so moses somehow maintains his composure and um, he turns and says all right who's on the lord's side who's on the lord's side okay pause and think about it for just a minute he had to ask the question at this point after what he's just done melts it down makes him drink it and then he asks the question whoever's on the lord's side come over here you know what i would love to do I would love to have heard him ask the opposite. Who's not on the Lord's side? Come forward and explain why. I, I, I'd like to try to do that at church instead of an altar call. We'll do a reverse altar call. You know, who wants to come forward and give their life to Jesus? That's a pretty simple thing to do. I'll tell you what, let's flip it. Who would like to come forward and explain why you wouldn't give your life to Jesus? How about that? That's a good one, right? That makes more sense. But he doesn't. He says, all right, who's on the Lord's side? Sons of Levi, 
um, come to his side and they do everything he says and he tells them, you know, go through the camp and, and kill everybody who's not on the Lord's side. 3,000 men that day die. And there's a lot of commentaries. I'll just briefly talk about this little issue. But right here, I believe we have the men in particular who had usurped the authority of the Le Le uh, Levitical priesthood and started acting in behalf of priests themselves to make this false god. And those 3,000 men in particular were, were, were cut down. And so that's the day that all the Levites are especially set aside from that point forward is when you see the Levites. And you'll see later on in the Bible um, the, the, uh, the power of the Levitical reign. We think of them, you know, priests and they you know, get shaved and they wear all the weird clothes and all that. These were mighty men of war. And this is a redemption. If you go back and read Genesis, this is a redemption of the tale of Simeon and Levi who went in without authority of their father and slaughtered the, the guys after they had gotten circumcised. And this is a, is a long-standing basic redemption of that entire arc of a story. So go back and read that out of uh, Genesis later on. Uh, so Moses ends up pleading for the people because remember, God still hasn't said he's not going to kill all the people. The 3,000 get killed by the Levites. God hasn't said, I I'm going to relent, you know, fully and not like, wipe out all the people. He relents at the beginning there, but Moses still has to plead. He says, the next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin and I'm going to go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses returns to the Lord and says, alas, the people have sinned a great sin. They made themselves gods. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out. Moses does exactly what his great, 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 great granduncle did Judah. Remember what Judah did? Mm -hmm. Judah says, don't take Benjamin, take me. And Judah, as a result of that moment, gets blessed above all the brothers and moved from the number four position to the number one position in the line because he takes the place of Benjamin. When Joseph says, all right, I'll just take Benjamin. You guys can go home. He's like, no, 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 don't do that. Moses is acting in that role now also, but instead of just the one son, he's acting on behalf of the entire nation. And it's a beautiful, humble, powerful moment that he's completely incapable of fulfilling because no man can fulfill any of that. Paul says it later on in Romans chapter 9, would that I would be blotted out, would that I could die, I, I would be anathema, I would be gone if my brothers and sisters who reject Jesus would come. There was only one man who ever fulfilled that role and whoever could, and that's Jesus Christ. But Moses is the precursor to that. And we know that Christ is even better as we read Hebrews. So God says, nope, that's not, that's not how this is all going to work. Um, he does send a plague on them. And chapter 32 wraps up with God sending this plague. As chapter 33 moves forward, um, God says, okay, we're going to go ahead and move forward. I'm going to renew my covenant with you guys, which is pretty awesome that he does. You are stiff-necked people. He kind of keeps on reminding them about that, uh, which is honest. And, um, and they, they mourn about the possibility of God not going to them, but, but Moses comes and says, no, we want you to, you know, God, you need to be leading the way. And so as he says, and I asked you to underline this earlier about God's way, um, now we see at the end or middle of chapter 33, Moses in chapter, uh, verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses, panim el panim, face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he continues on in verse 13 to the Lord. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your, in your sight, he asks these four things, four words, very simple. Show me now your ways. Show me your ways. Everything that's transpired, everything that's happened, God is saying, okay, I'm going to renew my covenant. We're going to head up to the promised land. And, and Moses says, not without you. 
You're going to have to go before us. I want you to show me your way. Right? You would think the guy who has seen God at the burning bush, the guy who spent all this time at the mountains, would already know the way. Would already have all that. But he's so humble. And he implores God again, show me your way. Make this clear, ladies. If Moses needs to ask that, how much more do each of us every day need to wake up and say those four simple words, show me your way. What, what an incredibly simple prayer just to go to God every day and just say that to God. I got a lot of church under my belt. I got my little worship songs playing. I do my little Bible study. I got Christian fellowship. I got Christian friends. I got a Christian. I got all the things every day. Okay. All right, Lord, show me your way. Show me your way. Four words. So, so simple and so profound. And he says, and God says to him, my presence will go with you. He goes back and forth with God. And the Lord says to Moses in verse 17, this very thing that I have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. I know you by name. Moses said the next four powerful words. And this is in chapter 33, verse 18, four words. Moses said, all right, show me your glory. It's beautiful. And I want you to pay attention as we move through exactly what his glory, God's glory is. It's so important to get this, right? Number one, the first prayer, show me your way, four words. Second prayer, four words, show me your glory. Moses said, show me your glory. And he said, all right, I will make all my glory pass before you. Go back to your Bible. Make sure I'm reading it right. Go back to your Bible. Take a look. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my glory pass. No. Verse 19, God says, I will make all my what? Goodness pass before you. That's God's glory. Connect it. Circle glory, circle goodness, draw a line. Connect glory to goodness. We're going to keep circling and connecting because it's going to get even better. God's goodness is his glory. Moses asked a point blank question before, show me your way. And God says, I will show you the way. Now Moses says, show me your glory. And you would think God would say, all right, I'll show you my glory. But he doesn't. He says the word goodness instead. Now moving on from there. I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my, what? Name. Circle it. Connect it. Glory. Goodness. Shem. Name. My name. That's God's glory. His name is his glory. I will make my goodness pass before you, proclaim my name, uh, proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. In other words, I will have... I, I'm being gracious to you. I could have blotted you out. But I will, I will choose to give you this. You've asked, I will give this to you. I will, I will give you this grace. And I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. He could have wiped out the Israelites and he does not. I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. That is his glory. Is the sovereign will of God. That is his glory. Right? So three things that are God's glory. Moses says, show me your glory. He says, I will show you my goodness. It's in my name, and it's in my sovereignty, the summary of what that means, you know, the, the idea of I will show mercy and grace on whom I will. He says, but you can't see my face, because in Moses' mind, he's like, show me your glory. He wants to see his face, because we already know that Moses was a man. He already wrote this. Remember, Moses is writing this after the fact. He's coming back and writing it down. And he was the one who saw God, panim el panim, but not really, because we get to this passage, and no one can see my face and live. But here's what I'm going to do for you. 
But I got a deal for you, Moses. And I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock, the cleft of the rock, and my glory will pass, and I'll put you there, and I'm going to cover you with my hand until I pass, and I'm going to take away my hand, and you'll see my backside, my face you won't see. So my glory is wrapped up in my goodness, is wrapped up in my name, is wrapped up in my sovereignty, and you're going to be able to experience that. And we know from what happens later, he comes down from the mountain, and he's just glowing. He's glowing. He doesn't even aware of the fact that he's glowing like he is. And so the Lord says to Moses, get your... You know, get ready to cut up some new tablets and like the first ones, I want to write on these, be ready in the morning, come up to Sinai, present yourself there to the mountain. Moses cuts the two tablets, chapter 34. And here we go. Chapter 34, verse 5. So the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. That's his glory. He proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Now, here we go. I want you to see the name of the, of the Lord. And so I, I don't ask you to specifically take notes, but I'm going to ask you to write this down. And you're gonna, we're going to write down 1 through 13, make a little list. You're going to write no more than about four words per line. And um, bonus points for you, Diana. You already got it. You can double, you can double it up because you, you were double dipping today. You went to this morning. And I actually made a slide. Uh, from, yeah, you get, a, you get a slide there. Here we go. Number one, Yahweh. Yahweh. This, in Hebrew, in your Bible, it probably says the Lord the Lord, a God, depending on what it says. I'll, I'll give you this. I mean, you can take a picture if you want, but I, I'll give you the, the printout of it later on. Um, the Lord, the Lord. And so it's no the there. It's just Yahweh, Yahweh. So number one, Yahweh. Number two, Yahweh. Now, the first reference to Yahweh is the idea of that I'm God. I'm God before people sin. And the second Yahweh is I'm God after people sin. Number three, L, which is I'm Yahweh, Yahweh, a God. So L is uh, short of Elohim. Um, and it's the all-powerful God. Number four is Rahum, and I'm a God who's compassionate or merciful, depending on your translation of your Bible. Um, number five is Vehanun, Vehanun, a God who is gracious. I'm God who's gracious. Number six, this is my favorite. I just love this one. This is Erek Apayim. Can you say that? Erek Apayim. Now touch your nose when you say it. Erek Apayim. When you say apayim, touch both sides of your nose on your nostrils. Apayim is nostrils. Any word in Hebrew, by the way, that ends in I am is plural. And this literally means long of nostril. Long nostrils. Erek apayim. Slow to anger. Or maybe your Bible says long suffering. Uh, does anyone know someone with a short fuse? That's someone who's prone to light up and go off, uh, you know. And they have a short fuse, they're prone to anger, right? This is God with a long fuse. Imagine a fire-breathing dragon who's snorting out fire out of his nostrils. And if his nostrils were real short, right, he would just blow it out. The fire would just come out. Big old plume of fire shooting out of the nostrils. But if his nostrils were super, super, super abnormally long, maybe by the time it got to the end of the nostril, the fire would be gone. That's that image. It's a figure of speech in Hebrew, like an idiom in Hebrew writing. He is slow to anger. He's long-suffering or he's long of nostril. <laughs> right? Erek. Verev chesed, abounding in loving kindness or goodness, depending on your translation. Number eight. Um, get to the next slide. Number eight is ve'emet, which is abounding in truth. The word emet is the word truth in Hebrew. Emet is truth. Ve'emet, abounding in truth. Um, and then number nine is notzer chesed la alafim. So there's a plural. You can see the I am. Maintaining 
loving kindness for generations, right? Um, it, it can also be just simply translated, um, maintaining loving kindness for thousands. In other words, um, everybody. It's, thousands would be like a euphemistic way of kind of saying, maintaining th for thousands, um, you know, if you said 10 or five people, we get it. But if you say a thousand, you mean basically everybody, right? Uh, so maintaining loving kindness for thousands or it can also be translated thousand generations. It can be translated both ways and both actually end up working. Uh, number 10 is no see Avon, like the Avon lady, but it's Avon. No see um, Avon and uh, it's forgiving iniquity. Now we move into this portion right here and we have a different meanings of sin. This number 10 is the type of sin that's premeditated. You thought about it and you did it anyway. Premeditated. He forgives that kind of sin. You thought about it and you had a chance to not do it. And you decided to do it anyway. Number 11 is va which is a rebellious transgression. Forgiving iniquity or is the first one. And then the next one is transgression. Now transgression is just rebellion, shaking your fist at God, right? A transgression. And then number 12 is va-hata'a, And that is unintentional sin. It's, that's the oops. If, if you had an oops, you might go, oh, oh, ah, I'm sorry, oh, oh, ah. So va hata ah, oh, 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 I made a mistake, oh, 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 ah, ah, like that. You can help you remember it that way. And I, I've heard this taught before where they say, oh, it's just basically it's three sins, it's three ways of saying sins because we sin so much. Nope, that is not what this means. It's actually three different types of ways that we can sin. And we see this if you were paying attention in Leviticus and Numbers because God provides ways for all of these types of sins to be taken care of. However, number 13, venake, venake, the guilty are not going to be unpunished. If there's, if there's someone left who refuses to take God's way of making an atonement, and making it right. And we see in the tabernacle, and we see in the sacrifices, and we see in the offerings, we see that even saw as you were making your matzah, God ordained us to make this, to embrace what it would be like to be in fellowship with him. If you haven't had a chance to make it, I encourage you. First of all, it's so super, super duper easy to make. And it just brings you all the more closer to understanding what God has done. Venake, the guilty are not going to go unpunished. There's so many reasons for them to receive acquittal from God. They're not going to be unpunished. And remember, I asked you to keep in mind all this because every single one of these moments here were represented earlier in this account of everything that the Israelites had done. They deserved to be annihilated, right? He was God before their sin, before they made that. He was God after their sin. He's the all-powerful God. He saw what they were doing. He heard what they were doing. He was aware of what they were doing. And yet he was compassionate and merciful. I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. Right? He has grace for them. He was slow to anger. Could he not have from the top of Sinai taken his nostrils and blown out fire and wiped them all out? What does he do instead? He engages Moses about it. Right? Not, not because he needed Moses' opinion any more than he needs our prayer in that sense. But he's all about relationship, right? This is an aspect of his compassion and his grace. He's slow to anger, he's long-suffering, and he's abounding in loving kindness and goodness. The fact that they only had to swallow that gold and take on a plague and 3,000 people got slaughtered. Anyway, 
and he's abounding in truth, right? Constantly going on over and over again, this idea of abounding in truth. And he's maintaining loving kindness, keeping mercy for thousands of generations. And it's a euphemistic way. It's a way of saying it's never going to end. He's never going to run out of his loving kindness. He's forgiving all the types of sins, the premeditated, the rebellious, the unintentional, but the guilty will not go unpunished. And that is what should cause us all to have a sigh of relief. Because don't we all long for the guilty to be punished? So that means we need to be among the people who are ready to say, I will not press upon God's mercy and grace and compassion. I will take the opportunity of what's been given to me to make it right. And Israel had that opportunity and all the sacrifices that they were to bring forward and the, and the bulls and the rams and the, and the sheep and the goats and the little doves and the bread and the wave, all the things. God had given them so many ways to maintain relationship with him, the one who is abounding in truth, forgiving, merciful, gracious. So whenever you hear somebody off the cuff roll their eyes at how the Old Testament God is so mean and smiting people, please... Point them back to this verse here. I will say this. There is no other place in the Bible where the Yahweh Yahweh appears except for one. And it's all the way in the New Testament. And it's when Jesus is giving a parable or a teaching. And he says, he says um, not everybody who says Yahweh Yahweh. Not everybody who says Yahweh Yahweh will I acknowledge right? Because I'm the God before people sin. I'm the God after people sin. And there is a holy way to come to me. There is a way to be in relationship with me. Not everybody who says Yahweh, Yahweh. That is the only other time Yahweh, Yahweh is put together. Never mentioned again in the entire rest of the Old Testament outside of this passage. The only other time it's in the Bible is in Jesus' teaching. Not everybody who says Yahweh, Yahweh, why? Because the guilty will not go unpunished. My mercy, my loving kindness, my compassion, my nose is long and suffering, but there is an end. The guilty will not go unpunished. And there is only one way for those of us who are guilty, which is anybody who has 10 fingers and 10 toes and a nose and a couple of eyes or any combination of the above in this room. We're all guilty before God. And there's only one mediator now between God and man, and that is, of course, Jesus Christ. And so Moses' powerful prayers over and over and over again as he communes with God, I want you to look at those conversations that Moses has with God as prayers. And the four-word prayers from this passage, I think, are the most transformative I could possibly imagine us being humble about and praying on a daily basis. Number one, show me your way. And number two, show me your glory show me your glory that is how we live it's so simple we don't need to complicate it and we can go back to this verse in in exodus 34 and say i want to see god's glory all right exodus 34 6 the lord the lord a god merciful and gracious slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity transgression and sin will no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, which is literally exactly what had happened in this moment here. That's God's glory, because God answers Moses' request with his goodness, his name, 
and revealing of his sovereignty, all encapsulated right here in this one revelation of God that's never spoken of again. It's referred to back and forth, but not the Yahweh, Yahweh part, until Jesus makes it clear. Not everybody who says Yahweh, Yahweh coming up to me. So this is how we can begin our days. This is how we can end our days. This is how we should be engaging with each other here in this fellowship that we will constantly be pointing each other back. And it's again why I plead with you not to go to the Bible and look for your own glory. Don't look for your own glory. Don't look for your own way. Don't look for a personality fix. Don't look for a truth fix to anything. Look to God and ask and pray that one simple prayer shall be Let's pray to